Thank you for listening to Eclipse Epics. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 20, The End. Previously, we described the Red Army continuing its breakthrough of the Mannerheim line, but at a great cost. Also, we finally saw Finland, unable to defend itself much more, agree to an armistice. We also sat back and watched the Allies continue their campaign of virtue signaling. On March 5th, seeing all the swirling of declarations of help for brave little Finland, the Soviets sent something of a clarification. There would be no ceasefire until the final terms of the deal were hammered out and signed. So a day later, four men, among them Ritty, were sent to Moscow to talk Turkey. On their arrival on the 7th, they were shocked to find there would be no talk of Turkey. These were the terms, accept them or keep fighting. And oh, by the way, we're adding the sessions of the Rybaki Peninsula, a band of territory up north in between where the Soviet 9th and 14th armies were still operating, albeit not well. Finland was also forced to build and pay for a railroad connecting Marmonsk with a strategic port on the Gulf of Bithynia near Sweden called Torino. Hashtag logic of war. The delegation tried to negotiate, but Molotov would have none of it. Also, Voiberg fell to the Red Army on March 10th. The Finnish government yielded and gave the delegation permission to sign the day after. The treaty was signed in Moscow during the wee hours of March 13th with the ceasefire to start at noon, one day after the Allies originally promised to start sending troops to Finland. But the fighting wasn't over. Even though there was exhaustion on both sides, the Red Army was instructed to keep fighting until a bitter end. Trotter notes that 15 minutes before the ceasefire took effect, the Red Army opened up a furious artillery barrage. Trotter using Soviet historians, says that they even concede the bombardment was purely revenge for, I guess, the gall of Finland for defending itself against a foreign invader. But with that little bit of nastiness, the Winter War was formally over. Finland lost a bunch to the Soviet Union. About 25,000 square miles of its land, roughly 25,000 men, and 420,000 homes. But what Finland lost most was its respect for the great Western democracies. This was captured best by Trotter and is a constant theme in his book, A Frozen Hell. He says the American journalist covering the war for Life magazine, Carl Maidans, spent most of his time in the Arctic by Sweden because it was the easiest way for journalists to gain access to Finland. After the war, he shared a sleeping area on the train to Sweden with three Finnish officers, one of them a colonel. Throughout the night, there was what Trotter calls a polite silence. In the morning, Maidans was trying to respect everyone's space while dressing. That Finnish colonel, while shaving, noticed a glance from Maidans in the mirror. The colonel took the opportunity to ask if Maidans was American, and he assented. Then the colonel asked my dance to tell his fellow Americans that Finland fought bravely. 
Tension mounted as the officer finished shaving, attending to a cut. As the colonel began to dress, my dad saw his hands shaking. Trotter says that quickly the colonel looked up at my dad with anguish, twisting his features. The colonel went on to say in a hoarse, quiet voice, quote, your country was going to help, end quote. Then in a louder voice, quote, you promised and we believed you, end quote. Now grabbing the journalist by the shoulders and screaming, the colonel exclaimed, quote, a half dozen goddamn Brewster fighters with no spare parts is all we got from you. And the British sent us guns from World War I that couldn't even work, end quote. Trotter says the Finnish officer let go of my dance and fell to his bed and, quote, wept convulsively, end quote. And you can feel this guy's pain, really. And you can feel all of Finland's pain. I don't know if you have been in relationships where you were constantly promised stuff and the other person on the other side couldn't um, keep the promise, whether they physically couldn't or they just wouldn't because they didn't want to. Um, I can definitely identify with this colonel and, and his pain, just being like, okay, like, you, you say you want to help us. You said you want to help us. You promised. You promised you'd help us. And we believed you. And that's shame on us in this case. Well, shame on you because we believed you the first time. But if it happens again, it's shame on us. It's hard to blame him or any Finn for feeling like the Allies abandoned them. Because, honestly, they did. The Allies did not want to involve themselves in the beginning because that might anger the Soviet Union, making Stalin's connection with Hitler stronger. The idea of both Hitler and Stalin against Britain and France would be a nightmare for the Western world. One of the main reasons they offered help at all, in the end, benefited them, not Finland. And the benefit there was basically offloading a bunch of outdated weapons they weren't going to use in this upcoming war on Finland. And Finland looks at that and it goes in that very emotional evocative quote that that we that we have with the journalist and the colonel over here. It shows in that quote. It really does. The allies conduct here informed how Finland approached the next 5 years. And hint hint I'm foreshadowing how Finland is going to play out the next five years after the armistice with the Soviet Union. And, spoiler alert, a dark and controversial period of Finnish history is going to be discussed in the next episode. Actually, no. In two episodes. And it's going to be on the Continuation War. Because in the Continuation War, Finland decided to ally itself to the Nazis. On the other hand, the Soviet Union gained most of what it wanted before the start of operations. Stalin achieved three of these priorities, according to Karl Van Dyke. First, the Gulf of Finland was closed to a Baltic Sea invasion from Germany by getting that 30-year lease on Hangu and annexing six eastern islands in the Gulf. 
Second, Stalin obtained a buffer on the Karelian Isthmus and Lake Ladoga's north shore by rolling back the Russo-Finnish border to the one established in 1721. Lastly, he bolstered the defense of Murmansk, his only ice-free ocean port and communication lines to Leningrad by compelling Finland to build a railway from Murmansk to that important port near Sweden. But that mustachioed master of the Soviet Union didn't get everything he wanted. Carl Van Dyke goes so far to say that the two concessions Stalin offered were a, quote, fundamental failure in Soviet policy, end quote. The end of logic of war by way of Molotov and the Red Army's more dubious means was to drive a hard bargain to achieve Stalin's minimum security requirements. The first concession was the 14th Army leaving Petsamo. The second, and most important, so important, Molotov tried to obfuscate its importance, was redoing the non-aggression pact between Finland and the Soviet Union, and not signing a mutual assistance pact like the rest of the Baltic nations. This will bite the USSR in the butt come June 22, 1941. But to call it a fundamental failure of foreign policy feels like shooting the arrow and painting the bullseye around it after. Quiet as it was kept, the Red Army was still struggling, even given the success of February and March. And Stalin needed to get out of this war just as bad. To achieve the mutual assistance pact, you would think the Red Army would have to take Helsinki, which would still take time. Even though the Finnish army was out of everything. And who knows, if Finland can survive until May, maybe, just maybe, Hitler would turn his Wehrmacht around and help out that little Baltic Republic after conquering the bigger Atlantic one. And also, the Allies did promise they would help, so maybe they're actually going to help. How much help they're going to give? I don't know. Is it actually virtue signaling? We're ne we'll never know. Regardless, the war's immediate cost for the Soviet Union is now estimated between 230 and 270,000, with at least another 200,000 wounded. But Trotter explains that, quote, the actual figures will probably never be known with any certainty, end quote. Molotov originally guessed that 48,000 475 were killed, and another 158,563 were wounded, including frostbite. And Nikita Khrushchev, Stalin's successor as premier, floats in his memoirs that a million men died. Now you have an idea of the wide variance of Red Army Winter War casualty estimates. Along with the loss of at least 48,475 soldiers, the war laid bare the inadequacies of the Red Army, largely wrought by the purges and Stalin's subsequent consolidation. Remember, that consolidation turned a burgeoning professional army into a bunch of spineless jellyfish, leading many pressed conscripts. An intelligence assessment from Germany stated that Quote, Russian mass is no match for any army with modern equipment and superior leadership. End quote. Read Wehrmacht. Hitler saw 
the Red Army's performance against a small Baltic Republic. He noticed it struggling and straining against a nation of less than 4 million, which was smaller than the size of the whole German army in 1940. It was this struggle that convinced the German dictator that the Soviet Union of 1939 was just the same as the Tsar's regime in 1914. Probably more accurately, 1917, 16, end of 1916, early 1917. He needed only to kick the door in. Instead of it collapsing when said no. Instead of it collapsing when said door was kicked in 1941, the Wehrmacht found yet another door, so it kicked that one in and found another, so on and so forth, until after the 500,000th door, a tired, ill-equipped Wehrmacht found many well-rested, prepared Siberian troops at a place called Stalingrad. But that is all for the epilogue. And next time, which will be the final scripted episode of this season, we will finish our analysis for the Winter War and lay the groundwork for the epilogues. <laughs>